0: Passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him.
1: You say so.
0: Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again.
1: Have you no answer? See the charges they bring against you.
0: But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do to the man you call the King of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify! Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done?
1: Hail king of the Jews. They struck his head with a
0: reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a school. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying,
1: Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross.
0: In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved
1: others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come
0: down from the cross now, so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi,
1: Eloi, lema sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
0: When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying,
1: Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down.
0: Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said,
1: Truly, this man was God's son.
0: There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tube that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother Joseph saw where the body was laid.
1: Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you walk along the dusty road, you're surrounded by others, either leaving the place that you're headed to or heading there along with you, perhaps for similar reasons, perhaps not. But your mind isn't on them. You're focused on the lump in your throat, the recognition of your shortcomings. You've not loved the people around you well. Your anger has flown out of you without even recognizing it until you see the eyes of the person you've turned on go just a little bit darker. You've been so obsessed by your neighbor's success that you've lost all sense of joy and gratitude at the food on your table, the clothes on your back, You've allowed bitterness to take root, and it feels like you can't even begin to turn over the sun-baked earth of your heart to undo it. And as you walk, you press the leash into your wrist until it leaves a mark. You can smell your destination now, the smoke, the strange mixture of grilled meat, iron-rich blood, and the sweetness of the frankincense. And now you can hear it, the familiar intoning of the priest, the splashing of the water, the crackling of the bonfire, the bleeding of the lambs. You look back at the lamb on your leash as it plods along. You're almost hoping for a sign of recognition, but there is none. The lamb's eyes say nothing at all. It has no idea why you have brought it here. It feels nothing of the conflict and sorrow in your heart. This lamb on your leash, it's not rational. There's no way of explaining or reasoning with it to bring understanding. There's no way of helping it anticipate that in a moment you will hold its head in your hands as the priest brings a knife to its neck, that in a moment its blood will splatter your sandals, speckling your feet and legs with its life's blood. And you begin to realize that in your lack of love, you have attempted to take the world away from God, to be self-possessed. And in so doing, you have found yourself living in a far-off place, disconnected from the God who gave you life. And here, in the life of this lamb, you are bringing it back to God. And you realize that it's not even really the lamb that is Korban. It's you Korban isn't a sacrifice or a debt or even really a gift. It means to draw near, and you are the one drawing near, offering back your life to the source of life. This is no generosity on your part, and the word necessity doesn't really fit. It is literally the only thing to be done. Your parents before you and their parents before them all the way back to the beginning, you have all been disintegrating, a mess of tears and tatters. Your life has been unspooled, unable to be pulled through the beautiful divine tapestry like it was designed to. Your failure to love has enslaved you to death. And even now, as you lead your lamb into the tabernacle courtyard, you check again for any recognition in its dark eyes, any knowledge of what any of this means. You're gripped with humility as you enter and a mixture of fear and love, or at least a desire to love, to learn to love. But will this keep your feet from slipping into Sheol? the place of disembodied dead? This evening, we are entering into a mystery that demands our silence. But it's a mystery that for many of us has become familiar, or at least there's a faux familiarity. The poem that we heard read from the prophet Isaiah, which has for centuries been understood as a poetic and theological reflection on the coming Messiah and his work on behalf of humanity is rich. Like most good poetry, it is difficult, and it requires a lifetime of study to suss out. And it also assumes a visceral familiarity with the practice of sacrifice, that we could actually smell in the air the blood, the fire, the incense, the water. Isaiah's imagery suggests both a division and a unity. There is the human community, sick and sinful, through and through, and all of us, in a sense, stand far off from God's suffering servant. We consider him barely human. He's been so marred by violent torture. We turn away from his ugliness, assuming he has nothing to offer us. Though we turn our faces away in shock and disgust, though we attempt to keep a safe distance from one so bruised and ugly, he, in his own turn, identifies with us. The great irony, of course, is that while we stand as far off as possible from him, and while he draws near unto us, becoming like us in every way, The chasm that exists between him and us is still staggering. For he was made like us in every way, but was without sin. Which means that there is no sacrifice needed on his behalf. Death being the wages of sin, he need never die. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Every moment of his incarnate life was a moment of pure and total love. Love for others, love for the whole of the created world, love for his father. He loved with a love that required nothing in return. No strings attached. No selfish ambition, no cutting down others in anger or lust, no bitterness toward those with an easier life. The early church understood the process of salvation as one in which human beings are set free from their captivity to death so that they might attain eternal life in order to eternally grow in their knowledge and love of God, being brought more fully into his life. Some of the church fathers taught that even perhaps if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the garden, God would still have become incarnate in order to dwell among us so that we might become by grace what he is by nature. But the world which God created is a world where human freedom is not an illusion. We were made free to love or not love. And we have all made our choice. If we are to understand what it means for Christ, the righteous one, to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin, we need to go back to first things. The world was created good and very good as an expression of God's beauty and joy and glory and love. And human beings were the jewel of God's creation, made as his icon in his image and given dominion over his creation, not to rule it with an iron fist, but to priest it, to care for it, to love it and offer it back to him in joyful thanksgiving. And in choosing not to do this, we must be clear, humanity has not added anything to itself. Sin is not extra. Sin is a parasite. As one theologian put it, we may say sinful humanity is not fully and properly human. Sin is a degradation or a reduction. This is crucial. And I've seen some of your faces light up as you start to flip through the Bible. So if you have questions afterwards, come and find me. But I'm going to say it again here as I say in my catechism classes. There is no such thing as a sin nature. Sin is not natural. It is utterly alien to God's creation. Sin is lack. It is emptiness. It is death. This is crucial in part because we must excise from our minds the idea that Jesus' sinlessness is a lack of something. Au contraire, mon frere, it is us sinners who are lacking. Jesus is more fully human than any other human being who has ever lived. And so likewise, we must get clear that the chastisement our sin requires, a chastisement declared to us in such brutal detail in Isaiah 53, is not the same as punitive punishment meant to inflict pain for the sake of pain. I'm going to say it again. The chastisement of our sin is not the same as punitive punishment meant to inflict pain for the sake of pain. We have to get clear in our minds who the enemies of God really are. Because if God's enemies are the fallen world and rebellious humanity, the solution is simple. It's very easy. God will gain victory over his enemies by destroying all that he has made. But the world and humanity are not God's enemies, and destruction is no victory in the divine economy. Remember, it is sin itself that is destructive, degradative, and reductive. And it is sin, and the full flower of sin, which is death, that our God's enemies, and in Jesus Christ, both are destroyed forever. Glory be to him. In going to the cross as the Lamb of God, Jesus reveals death to be impotent and empty. And this is my point about the sacrificial lamb in the tabernacle worship. Animals are not rational. Not once in hundreds upon hundreds of years, thousands upon thousands of sacrifices, did a lamb look their owner in the eye and say, It's okay. I've got this. Let me take the consequences for your sin. Likewise, no criminal has ever had such an opportunity, for any criminal who has died has died as a result of their own sinfulness. Death is the paycheck of sin, and we are all criminals now. But Jesus, as the righteous one, I say again, without sin, he is fully human and fully God. And as God, he is incorruptible, therefore, the church is taught, he took to himself a body that he might enter into death in order to destroy it from the inside. If death is the paycheck for sin, it became devastatingly overdrawn in attempting to swallow a sinless victim. Death's debit card stopped working when it tried to take Jesus down into itself. And this is the key difference between Jesus the Lamb and all human beings ever and all the sacrificial sheep and goats who have ever existed. Jesus alone willfully chooses to die. He is both the victim and the priest, the only being ever to be offered up and to offer himself up in one and the same act. And he does it so that the world, his world, the one that came into being through him and is held in being by him, might be set free from the darkness and despair of death. He did it so that his image might be fully restored in humanity, that we might be regathered out of our fractured state, rebuilt out of our skeletal existence, fed by his own body and blood, and made into full human beings living icons of God. As we enter into Holy Week, we do so with sorrow over our sin, with horror over the suffering of the Son of Man, the Lamb of Righteousness who offered himself as a sin offering. But we do so rooted in a deeper joy because our eyes are already scanning beyond it toward the horizon of Easter. And so this week, may we sing as our Orthodox brothers and sisters do on Holy Saturday, to hell, today, hell cries out groaning. I should not have accepted the man born of Mary. He came and destroyed my power. He shattered the gates of brass. As God, he raised the souls that I had held captive. Glory to thy cross and resurrection, O Lord. Today, hell cries out groaning. My dominion has been shattered. I received a dead man as one of the dead, but against him I could not prevail. From eternity I had ruled the dead, but behold, he raised all. Because of him do I perish. Glory to thy cross and resurrection, O Lord. Today, hell cries out groaning. My power has been trampled on. The shepherd is crucified and Adam is raised. I have been deprived of those whom I ruled. Those whom I swallowed in my strength, I have given up. He who was crucified has emptied the tombs. and The power of death has been vanquished. Glory to thy cross and resurrection, O Lord. Amen.